Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guest is Tony Award-winning actor and ventriloquist extraordinaire, Jay Johnson. Star of the Broadway hit show, The Two and Only, and the breakthrough TV comedy series, Soap. And now, your sexy boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet, and by the process of elimination, I, which I just did, by the way. No, I'm no, no, Phil. you can't do that. You did that in the last show. I'm sorry, you're going to have to change jokes. Okay. And there's somebody sitting with us at our beautiful outdoor studio yes. here in my upper patio in, in Blessed Benedict Canyon. Uh, and and who, who are you, sir? Uh, my name is Jay Johnson. I'm a home inspector. And uh, <laughs> what's going on up here? <laughs> there's a party going on across the street, which turns out to be a daycare center. The daycare came over and asked us to hold it down. Remember? Yeah, right. A little unruly. Well, our unruly guest is Jay Johnson, uh, who has a multifaceted career. And you uh, are probably best known for your ventriloquism and your comedy, your sharp wit. Ouch! And, which I see you brought, you Just, brought with don't you. Don't touch my wit. Yeah. And most people, of course, uh, know you from the television show Soap. Yes. And probably from your one-man show, The Two and Only, is so named because? Well, because uh, that was what uh, a character said we would always be. My first character, Squeaky, was not Bob on Soap, and he yep. got uh, mm -hmm. recast. <laughs> <laughs> he said it'll always be the two of us. We're the two and only. Yeah. It was an absolute delight. It was just so funny. So funny. It's an amazing show because you really are telling the story of how you fell into your profession, as it were. I saw it in New York Yes, at, at the Hayes. When was it? Well, we uh, won the Tony for the 2007 season, so yeah. Bravo. Been... For people who are not acquainted with ventriloquism, they think that throwing the voice yep. Yep. Is, is a thing that you're able to somehow project your voice across the room. Of course, that's an illusion. So the question is, where's all that conversation happening? <laughs> Well, uh, I, I love to study uh, the uh, physics and physiology of, of speech because it's very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. But you have to, when you're talking about speech and, and sound, you also have to talk about the ear and how it works and how a human ear works so much different than a, an animal's ear or any other. If you think about it, a horse has very poor eyesight because it's on the side of their heads, but their ears are are, can turn independently. Mm -hmm. Like a cat. Like a cat. Right. Like a lot of animals. A lot like of rabbits. Animals. Yeah. They they can turn their ears independently and then they can get the direction of the thing. We have ears that are stationary on either side of our head. So to get the full effect, we really have to turn our head so the sound comes to us. And the way we, we are led to that is by our eyes. Um, our eyes will, you know, what is that sound? Oh, that's it. Oh, that's, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I now I know what that is. I knew what the sound was, but now I can identify where it is. The distance of ventriloquism, you don't really throw it, but the sound wave has amplitude and frequency. And the frequency is how many times that the wave repeats itself. Mm -hmm. But the amplitude is how big and long the wave is. Mm -hmm. When a sound is coming from some distance away, it travels to the atmosphere. So the amplitude gets smaller and smaller, and smaller, the further away it is. The frequency doesn't change, but the amplitude gets smaller and smaller until it, it, it doesn't move because it has no amplitude. Um, our ears are so, we don't use them as much as our eyes. 
basically your ear is just counting what it hears as uh, amplitude and frequency. And so it's, yeah, that sounds like a dog and it sounds like the dog is next door because the, the amplitude mm -hmm. that I'm perceiving on my eardrums, that would make sense. So what a ventriloquist does is create that amplitude and then place in your mind a reason for them to go there. Uh, okay, that sounds like it's, yeah, it's coming from over there. I've mm -hmm. just given your mind a way. So now you're, you don't have to look. Your mind says, oh yeah, yeah, that's a guy that's down in the basement or whatever. And, and that's really what ventriloquism is. You can't throw your voice past the ear of a person. Um, we're, we're sitting here not facing, and if uh, it'd be great if I could make you think that somebody was behind you and you turn around and go, what? It doesn't, doesn't do that because sound stops at your ear. It doesn't go and come back. Anything behind me, I can make you think that there's something behind me mm. because it's it's coming to you. Uh, isn't that right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't do it behind. The limitations of, of the um, con job are, are interesting for distant voice, yeah. The eyes on the puppet are critical to... I think so. ...spatial orientation. Yeah. It, also for acting and also for, for uh, emotions and everything, the eyes are really... Uh, uh, really important, you know. I was wanting to watch you to see if I could see any lips move or how you were trying to do it, even though it was obviously impossible to see it. But, but I kept to drawn the to the puppet. Right, right. yeah, yeah. Well, it's highly animated, too. Sure. The controls that, uh, that are built in were, are quite remarkable. And the idea is to make it look as much alive as you can. Mm -hmm. And we're not, I'm maybe changing now with all the social media, but we're taught to interact with a, with a person that seems to be alive rather than dismiss them. So uh, all the talk shows I did back in the day, you would sit next to Mike Douglas or Dinah Shore, whoever it was, and they would want to talk to me. That's probably the question. But, but Bob is right there, and they can't help but look at Bob. Right. Then they catch themselves looking at Bob, and I think every Merv Griffin that I did, no, every Mike Douglas, Mike would say, I'm talking to a puppet. <laughs> That's why we're here. Your, yeah. your monkey character. Yeah. Darwin. I was absolutely focused on yeah. Darwin's hanging foot in front of you. I don't know why. <laughs> it was just so oddly real. Yeah. Show business. The whole family is in show business. You ought to see my family tree. No, the family is still there. <laughs> monkey joke, lady. All right, all right, later on, please. Where are the bars? There's no bars, you're not in the cage. I wanted a drink. Okay, okay, okay. What will you have? Banana daiquiri. <laughs> Lucky joke. Lady. Where's this from? Okay, all right, all right, on, please. <laughs> well, that's another thing that's fun about the show. You get to demonstrate your skill with different kinds of, yeah. of puppets. Right, by the way, why don't they call them dummies? Because it, is that degrading to the, the little A lot size? of people do. A lot of people call them dummies. In fact, uh, the uh, world's greatest ventriloquist museum in right outside of Cincinnati, uh, they refer to them as dummies all the time. I, I never cared for that word. Yeah because it comes from the root word dumb, which means unable to talk. Ah, that's right. Even words are important. And if, if I believe that it really doesn't talk, hard for me to convince somebody else. 
And in the show, I remind everybody that they prefer to be called wooden Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, your craft, your artisan work, has been compared to sewage, demonism oh, yeah. through history, oh, yeah. starting in 850 CE. I believe that was when um, Photius said that it is a wickedness lurking in the human belly, deserving to dwell in a cesspool, ventriloquism. That's why the ventre, French word for stomach. Yes, ventriloquism actually means speaking through your stomach. Uh, ventre, uh, uh, belly, and uh, lequi meaning stump, uh, speak. So speaking through your belly. Your belly. Long before puppets, ventriloquism was used as a seance technique or mm -hmm. speaking to the winds or talking to a a statue that oracle perhaps yeah everything so it was it was very mysterious and you didn't let on that you were doing that but you can see diaphragm movement on anybody yeah. that's doing anything vocally you know right. we kind of cover it up with clothes sometimes but so i assume that they saw those first ventriloquists and they believed that that's where the sound was coming from which was the case uh -huh. but they thought it was a demon that it Belly of the beast. Yeah, exactly. So this was an ancient superstition that still lives today. I, yeah, very yeah. much. In the show, you were talking about a story about how some, uh, I oh, guess, fundamentalist Christians God, yes, attacked. Yes. Did, did that really happen? Yeah, it did. Actually, oh, did. Please yeah. tell the story. Yeah. So after the show, um, these people that were fundamentalist and and evangelist and trying to save everyone came up and told me that I shouldn't do that because uh, the, the Satan was the first ventriloquist based upon the fact that Satan threw his voice into the snake in the Garden of Eden. So they had taken that passage of uh, Satan uh, talking through a snake as ventriloquism. Um, and I'd never heard that before. No. I had no idea, you know, that I, I was doing something satanic. Um, so, yeah, it, it has that. It, even in the Bible, there are certain passages. And I used to be able to quote them uh, book and chapter, but one case where a uh, little slave girl is making a donkey talk and she was predicting what? and soothsaying and when she was speaking through her ass <laughs> oh man how did i miss that joke <laughs> phil thank you well it's Irony. gone now it's gone now. that's why phil gets the big bucks <laughs> <laughs> there'll be a new version of the two and only and i know one joke's gone <laughs> <laughs> so one of the disciples uh, uh, cast the demon out of her and she can't do that anymore. Uh -huh. uh, and so they were saying that's, you know, it's, a, it's an evil spirit. So you, you, you can't, you shouldn't do that. And the way I interpret the, the Bible in that case, being a ventriloquist, I think I'm blessed with the talent, not cursed by the talent. Absolutely. It was a trick that they were making money off of her and she was a slave getting nothing. So they were basically using her. So it's not the disciple cast out a demon because she was, he actually cast out the demon of, of uh, these rich guys capitalizing on this little girl who had some sort of issue. So to me, it wasn't like a ventriloquist uh, exorcism. It was a capitalist exorcism, you know. <laughs> but then as man evolved and got smarter and... Did he? <laughs> Which one? I Which can't guy? wait to see that. In the 1700s, uh, someone, a Frenchman, announced that his studies indicated that it was not demons. Right. It was just simply mental illness. Mental illness, that's yeah. right. That's right. They commissioned this study, uh, the Royal Committee of Sciences, to find out if ventriloquism was uh, demon possession, uh, physical abnormality, or what what it really was. And they, they concluded it was neither one of those two, but it was mental illness. I thought it was dental illness. <laughs> and it, dental illness. <laughs> the question really is, is why were they studying it? That's a question I, I can't answer. Uh, I think at that time they were trying to 
debunk the spirituality of it so that yeah. they could, you know. In the turn of the 20th century, mm-hmm. mediums were very popular. You bet. Yeah, life after death. The new century made people curious about the unknown. Yeah. Mediums had a, a big industry at the time. You bet. That's pretty much ventriloquism at the time. It wasn't really so much show business. Oh, yeah. Before ventriloquism was combined with a puppet, uh, and it combined itself with puppetry. Mm-hmm. It was that occult art. It would be on the kin to uh, palm reading or astrology, or you would go to, and you might not have called him a ventriloquist, you would have called him the soothsayer. And uh, the oracles of Delphi, for example, were uh, women, and you went to this cave and uh, she would consult the wind. Now, uh, the, the structure of this cave was that there was a, a vent that vented um, volcanic smoke. Uh, so it's very selfish. So if you were in there for a little while, you got a little bit a little high, dizzy, huh? high. Mm-hmm. Acoustically, it was just perfect for a ventriloquist. Mm-hmm. And then they would prophesy and 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 tell all the things. And that's you would go and do that. So ventriloquism has been associated with those um, kinds of things a lot more than comedy and puppetry and and stage performance, really. Your affinity for music, did, did that start as, at a young age? Did you have piano lessons? Yeah, yeah. Both of my aunts were piano teachers. And, oh, boy, uh, perfect. Yeah. So I got to choose which one I liked best. And uh, My father um, recognized early. He was an educator and teacher and eventually became superintendent. My mom was a teacher and a librarian. But they recognized really early on that, that I was not... Um, normal. Normal, yeah. <laughs> I was on some sort of spectrum, so they were going to find what spectrum it was. It turns out uh, I, I was dyslexic long before they even had a word for that. You so. were less, dis, less dyslexic dis, dis, in those days. I, you know, but we're all uh, united or untied. Oh, untied. Right. untied. <laughs> the untied state snakes of America, right. <laughs> Great joke somebody told me, said, uh, if you're dyslexic, you should join our theatrical group. And I said, oh, oh yeah, that'd be fun. What are you doing now? And they said, well, we're, we're now touring Annie Get Your Nug. Uh, so anyway my my folks would encourage anything that would keep my attention because uh books and education was not but Uh i loved houdini and so they bought a book on houdini i read that Uh and houdini because of his mother yes was determined to debunk you bet he was a major debunker he was and there was there was a lot of that going on at his day i mean that was a the Church of Spiritualism was all about seances. And to this day, there is a code word that he gave to his wife, Bess, mm-hmm. that he said, if I if I can ever come back, I will give the code word. And only she knew it. And she died with it. We're not sure what it was. Rosebud. Rosebud, yeah. exactly. The story of how he realized it was all a fraud. He was taken by his father to talk to his mother. And that was commonplace back then. It was basically a bomb to help people who mm-hmm. were grieving, like a, to try to calm that person down. You can talk to your lost mother or your husband. Mm-hmm. And so they brought Harry as a young kid, I guess he was 13 or something, to talk to his mother. And he asked his mother a question. And the problem was that the medium answered in English. And his mother never spoke in English. Right. It was, I guess, Hungarian. Yeah. And so he knew right then and there it was a fraud, and that pretty much pissed him off. Yeah, don't piss off a magician. So ventriloquism became associated with an ilk, if you will. Oh, yeah. When did it really take the turn in, like, vaudeville? Do you have any idea who might have created the first puppet act or anything like that? Well, the first person that we know, uh, at least we have a record of, that actually worked with a puppet, it was a uh, uh, actually a nutcracker. 
Uh, not correct. Yeah. His name was St. Gilly, and he didn't know about the seance of ventriloquism, but he realized he could make this talk for children, and that became a performance rather than some spiritual experience. And when was this? 1772. I wonder if he had an uphill swim in terms of trying to make it a clean art. <laughs> Probably. Then what happened after after him, uh, the Nutcracker, then the, the, the rule of the day was large puppets, life-size, uh, arranged on a stage, and you do a play. And so there's one guy uh, that's doing all the voices for all the characters and not unlike a, a quick change artist that they hmm. used to do as well. So that was part of the vaudeville. And a guy named uh, uh, Fred Russell had witnessed for the prosecution 20 characters on a stage. Oh, good heavens. They just did this play. Then he later was the first guy to actually shrink a puppet down so he could hold it and walk right to the audience holding this little puppet. Oh. And the newspapers say that women swooned and fainted and they, they couldn't deal with the fact that they it wasn't real, but it was. And what is it? And it can't be a child. Sounds like one of my first dates. <laughs> <laughs> but also that that gives rise to the uh, dummy uh, being associated with ventriloquism, because mm -hmm. when when people would see that act, they were basically uh, storing the mannequins mm -hmm. that had a mouth movement. And so you look at them and go, well, there's there's a whole stage full of dummies. The ventriloquist puppet has been sort of maligned in the horror genre as well because it's oh, in yeah. the scary clown territory of exactly. a being that isn't quite real, but maybe it is real. Didn't you do a, a show where the the dummy was a murderer or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, it was um, after uh, Columbo. They did Mrs. Columbo. For <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. You know, he was always referring to my wife. You know, my wife, she's uh, well, they, Kate Mulgrew became his wife. And so Mrs. Columbo solved all these, these things. So I played the part of ventriloquist who, um, like every horror star, has lost control of who he thinks these puppets are and eventually has to kill the guy who made the puppet because the puppet was turning, you know, so I had to kill the was creator. Was controlling you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, of all the times I, I reel against uh, uh, those those parts and characters, I've played several. So, you know, I guess. You actually had quite a very extensive career. Maybe you still do as an actor. If there's a part for a ventriloquist my age that comes up, I'll get it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and a few times some people got it, but they never saw a ventriloquism as acting. They never saw that as an actor. It's now, so weird. I thought it was. It's a novelty or something. Yeah, right? like a stand-up comic is not always a great comedy actor. Yeah. But this is dialogue. This is... Uh, you should have gotten paid twice. I wanted to. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with our special guest, Jay Johnson. We'll be right back. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. To hear all the Sexy Boomer shows, go to our website, sexyboomershow.com, and please tell your friends about the Sexy Boomer Show. If you want to know when fresh Sexy Boomer shows are posted, press the subscribe button in your podcast player for free delivery to your ears. Back to Phil and Ted and their special guest, Jay Johnson, star of the Tony Award-winning Broadway hit show, The Two and Only... Hi, I'm Ted. And I'm Phil. And we're back with the Sexy Boomer Show. Who are we talking to today, Ted? Jay Johnson, the two and only. Hello, how are you? Good to see you. Da -da -da -da. <laughs> you broke ground with your art by bringing it to television in the most extraordinary way, which was the sitcom Soap. Soap was, uh, was an amazing experience. And yeah, it, it was perfect for me. Soap at the time was considered very cutting edge and risque. Kind of avant-garde too, you know. Yeah, 
Tell us what Soap was and the significance of what you did coming to that show. The show was immediately, I think it was Time Magazine, got a, a copy of the script. They said that soap is 99 and 44, 100% impure. Oh, no, no, no. Because we had a character that was uh, gay. The other person was going to play a gay man. Uh, impotence was in the first uh, couple of episodes. Um, there was going to be a scene that really never happened. They never showed it. That a priest was going to seduce a woman in the confessional. Whoa. Uh, well, the thing about it is... all. You're talking about comedy setups. Yeah. You're not talking about really doing that. It's not The Sopranos. Yeah, it's not. It, it wasn't. It was always going to be a comedy, and the hook was that it was a um, long arc. Nothing happened in just thirty minutes. It would it would go over several episodes, so it yep. would be a, like a soap opera story. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Soap and soap. It was opera. a very ingenious show. Soap had the advantage. Uh, we never had a script that had a name. It wasn't uh, Chuckles the Clown uh -huh. and Soap. It was show five, show seven, or show eight, show nine, show ten, because that's what they shot. But since all the scenes were interchangeable, there was no thirty-minute arc that you had to pay off here. They could say, "Well, we're light with comedy here. Let's do that scene. That's funnier. Let's put it here." And they would just shuffle the scenes around because wow. they had no relationship to the one before it necessarily. So that was kind of breakthrough. Yeah. What yeah. year was this? Um, first show was seventy-seven. We went to seventy-seven to eighty-one. Four years. Mary Hartman, Fernwood Tonight. Yeah. The 70s were a real uh, open period for yeah. creative yeah. experimentation. We were the first show to say the word horny. No now, kid. when you think about that now, yeah, yeah, there no. was nothing. And to get that word into the script, at the time we were allowed to maybe say one hell, one damn, maybe, if it was relevant and it, it was whatever. But you couldn't say more than two in an in a episode. So this, this script was just full of hell this and damn that and what the hell. And, and we all read it and we went, oh, there's, there's no way. There's no way. Well, when they said, well, you can't say hell five times. You can do maybe once, okay. And damn, you have to say it maybe. I, let's don't say damn. I don't know. Argue, argue, argue. And they just weren't looking at the word horny. <laughs> they just, <laughs> they didn't, were just didn't even hear it. That's right. It's amazing what slipped through because of that yes. subjective judgment of the censor was stuck on something that got to them personally oh, yeah. and they completely missed the point of the real joke and and i think that uh censorship not that i'm for it or against it well more for it than against it perhaps i think back then it made for better writing mm -hmm. because you couldn't just throw it down and say uh, all these things somebody said well okay you can't say the word pregnant okay so how do you get around yeah, saying right. pregnant Writers became very good at, at, at wordsmithing around those things to make it subtle and, and so the people would get it, would get it. How did a ventriloquist character get into the soap scenario? The first year, the plot twist hanger at the end of the year was who killed Peter Campbell, which was my brother, stepbrother to Jody in any way. So we were real brothers. So Chuck and Bob were supposed to be the murderers of Peter Campbell. And Susan got that from the book Magic by William Goldman. Oh. So she had read that that he was a murderer, uh, a murderer in a, a, a very dark portrayal of ventriloquism. And she said, well, that'd be fun to have the villain be a ventriloquist. And so I was on the show for seven episodes to uh, be the killer and they would write me off. But we found a niche that helped us like Benson was to the to the Tates. 
Chuck and Bob were to the Campbells to be that Greek chorus to say, you know, they were insane, insane. And somebody has to say that uh -huh. or you just accept it. Well, this is crazy. Y'all are nuts. Chuck and Bob got to say that. So we stayed and they found another way to get the killer. And the plot of the show really does take a detour at that point. Bob was your original puppet, right? Uh, no, that was Squeaky. Squeaky was my Squeaky, original. Yeah. But did Squeaky play the part of Bob? No. Um, Squeaky, they decided, was much too sweet to play this part. Uh-huh. So uh, they recast. They recast. Uh, <laughs> they recarved. Yeah. And recarved. literally, uh, here is a puppet that I've I've had made by a man that becomes my mentor. And yeah. every every stroke of a, a chisel, I, I know why. Yeah. And yeah. now they just say, here's your partner. And the me mechanism was not not comfortable. Oh. It was just, you know, worked a long time just to make it workable for, for so. Who did build it? Um, it was built by uh, Rene Zendejas, who was a marionettist. And then he w he did a stock ventriloquist puppet. It was bought by a guy named Jack Shafton. Jack Shafton changed the face a little bit and then sold it to uh, with Thomas Harris. So it had gone through three or four machinations before I even got it. So by the time the second season came around and I was, I was on the show, uh, I had them do a, a, a better Bob, you know, so there were actually two Bobs that were on the show. The original Bob is at the Smithsonian. Yes. So you have Bob's twin brother. Bob was also treated as a member of the cast. I oh, guess. yeah. And very, very much so. I said, let's just treat Bob like you would treat anybody else on the set, knowing that, you know, <laughs> all my experience was that they're going to talk to him anyway. So we might as well just say he's real. Sure. But, uh, one day the, the director, I said, you know, Bob is not on the call sheet. I'm on the call sheet, but Bob's not on the call sheet. And if he's not the call sheet, he says he's not coming into work. <laughs> and so they put out another call sheet the next day, and I, I was coming in at 10 o'clock, and they had Bob coming in at 8. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> When you talk about the puppets having personalities, there's a reverence, and I don't think it's stagecraft. You mean it when you put the puppets back in their boxes and their suitcases. Yeah. And putting a piece of black fabric over their eyes. Yes. Which sounds almost superstitious. What is that about? Well, you know, people in the show are actually positions, but that was actually uh, something that my mentor and the man who made Squeaky told me to do. And it was based upon his belief that, like the uh, Greeks and maybe Romans, I think Greeks for sure, believed that at your death, the spirit mm -hmm. left through your eyes. Your eyes. Mm -hmm. Since that little puppet has a spirit that you have given it, put something over the eyes since they can't be closed so that that spirit doesn't get up and walk around and leave and not be there when you're, when you're back. Do you know in, in Celtic and Irish, the word for I is soul? Well, see, there you go. I'd never heard that. Yeah. But it's perfect. When you talked about that in your show about putting the black fabric over the eyes, uh, it, it also meant in order to maintain a connection the way somebody would to the Stradivarius, mm -hmm. right? You do have a, an honest relationship. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna convincingly bring spirit through this wooden device, you're going to have to hypnotize yourself a bit. I, yeah, that's the way I saw it. And right or wrong, that's the way I've, I've lived it. They're instruments. They need to be taken care of. The cloth protects them. There's a lot of reasons. One time on the Mike Douglas show, I was on with Itzhak Perlman, famous uh, violinist. violinist. And his violin comes from Beethoven's orchestra, a Stradivarius that was used in Beethoven's orchestra. Ooh. Very expensive instrument. Now, I've got probably a squeak at the time, could have been Bob, in my little carrying case next to my chair. Mm -hmm. And sitting next to me is Itzhak Perman in, in a case with his violin 
right next to him. So I looked at him and I went, you know what? We're, we're, we're both guys with axes. You know, here we are. He's got an axe, I got an axe. And a guy comes stumbling in the room and he's not kind of knocking everything over. And I gently picked up the suitcase and put it in my lap and looked over and Itzhak had done exactly the same thing. <laughs> the reason ventriloquism was so important for soothsayers and spiritual matters and things like that, it's because before recordings, you couldn't duplicate the human voice. You couldn't store it. You couldn't send it. You couldn't replay it. A voice happened live at the time, or it just didn't. So there was no other way to say, well, I could have been recorded. There was no such thing. So if you heard something that spoke and you were convinced that came from that statue, there was no question that it wasn't a spirit because how else would that be done? That's right. In college, I was so fascinated by ventriloquism being used as a seance. I thought, I'd love to do that mm. just to see if it works. I love to tell ghost stories. So I was telling ghost stories. And then one time I said, well, we should have a seance. And I had no idea except a couple of ideas what I was going to do. And somebody said, oh, well, yeah, wait a minute. No, you're a ventriloquist. And I said, yeah, but I, I wouldn't use it for this. It's serious. And that's all I had to say. Ah. Then no one accused me Nobody of doing questioned it. Nobody questioned it because I said, well, I'm, I, no, this is, I, ventriloquist is a stage. This is different. There was a technique I used, and I, I just came up with this on my own. Stare at the candle, and we will know when the spirit enters the room by, the, candle by the flicker of the candle. Well, eventually, a candle's going to flicker, so it's just a matter of time. <laughs> but what everyone did was stare into the candle. What I did was avert my eyes and, and close them, if I could, so that when somebody said, oh, that's it, blow out the candle, there in the dark, I've already adjusted. So right. I have some time when I can see their faces and they don't know anybody can see them. Very good. And when you don't have your eyes, you listen with your ears, the smallest yep. little thing becomes huge. And I would get away with murder and it was great date night and have girls <laughs> scream and so I'll take care of that spirit, you know. The one thing about magic and ventriloquism, magic operates on the idea that you don't know what's happening and yes. you get fooled. Now, once you know, you're not fooled in the same way. You can appreciate the brilliance. You can say, wow, the way he slid the that. Skill. Right? So the yeah. skill, you appreciate it. But the baffled, my God, how did that happen? doesn't happen anymore. Ventriloquist walks on stage. You know what he's going to do. You know that he's going to do the voice and he's going to operate a puppet. So the trick is right there. But in about two minutes, they get involved with that character. Yeah. It goes much deeper than just being fooled. It, it goes into, I had a playmate one time that I wanted my doll to talk and it never did. And I always wanted it to. And and maybe I had an imaginary playmate. And all of that comes back uh, psychologically. So the relationships there. Yeah. Yes, right. Can we put you on the spot for a moment? I, I assume so. So we're recording uh -huh. this with three microphones. You have yes. your own microphone. Yes. Everything's in mono. There is no yes. stereo here at work. Right. Yes. It's... it's <laughs> it's a podcast. They can't see you do yes. your craft. But can you create your illusion with that sort of a limitation? Uh, it's much better if you if you see what I'm doing, but I can describe what I'm doing. Okay. Back in, um, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that when Edgar Bergen did his first radio show on the Rudy Valley show, 
there's a wonderful three or four minute introduction where they say, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bergen is in a top hat and has a, a nice white tie and tail. His little partner, uh, Charlie, is in the same thing with a monocle and he's just as sassy as, he, well, they described mm -hmm. Charlie mm -hmm. and so you had an idea, right? So I don't have a Charlie, but I, I have uh, this uh, sparkling water bottle that you have given me to drink and it's empty now. So right here, you can see, that's what, when sound gets compressed, in a bottle like that, then um, it, it has a particular sound. But if you take your voice out of your out of your mouth, you go like this. I'll just sing a little song because it's easier to hear uh, repetition. So uh, I am not doing that duck, but I wish I had. Uh, <laughs> crow. That's a crow. <laughs> See, I do. That's a crow. It's a duck imitating a crow. <laughs> it's all amplitude. It's all amplitude. <laughs> yeah, he's probably standing right here. Oh, oh! Before I, I do this, and I, I, this bottle will uh, do something. But I'm waiting at the airport for my friend Ron Lucas, who is also a really wonderful ventriloquist known him for a very long time. We're gonna to fly to San Francisco together and we're gonna meet at the gate. And I'm sitting at the gate and suddenly I hear somebody go, Jay, way off in the distance. And I go, oh no, it's probably right there. And I'm not gonna give him, <laughs> I'm just gonna ignore it. He, he can do distant voice all day long. I'm not, I'm not falling for it. Jay, Jay, not doing it, not doing it. And then I realized, it actually is Ron way over the other <laughs> side of the airport yelling at me. <laughs> and I'm ignoring him. Like, I don't even know who he is. So, anyway, right. so when you compress uh, sound in a bottle, it, it just sounds different. So I'm going to take it, my voice out of out of my voice, which is here, and I'm going to put it in my hand. So you kind of hear the hand like that. Right. And then I'm going to put it in this bottle and, and just see what you do with compressed sound. So I hope that works in non-stereo. Here we go. Merrily we roll along. Roll along. Roll along. Roll along. There it is. People are at home going, I don't understand it. I don't understand it though. You use your hand and we're giving you a hand. Thank you very much. must have been great on dates. You know, I, I rarely use it as a parlor trick, although the, the lady I've been married to for almost 50 years now, Sandra, uh, the first time we were out on a date, we had bench seats in this car, and she was sitting way over here, and I, I gotta get her in. So uh, I don't do it as well now because my voice is a little older, but I used to do a great siren. Great oh. siren, and it was ah. like this, and I'd be looking around, and then I'd roll down the window, and it'd get louder, and roll it up, ah. and say, "I better pull over." <laughs> so I pulled over, and I said, "You better go over here. We don't know what's going to happen." She's never forgotten <laughs> that. Thing, now, now, my wife Melinda wanted you to tell a story about Harry Anderson. Yes, we both loved Harry very, very much, and yes. he was a very close friend and, and a generous, wonderful, funny man. Uh, but he was a, a, an inveterate practical joker mm -hmm. as well, and and you told at his uh, at his memorial service a story that Melinda just loved. It's the chauffeur's hat. Oh, God, yes. He was called Harry the Hat because he always wore a fedora and uh, was that 40s kind of character, that Damon Runyon guy. He played a kind of a con man. Yeah, he know. was a... He was. A he didn't even play con man. He wasn't set up who Harry man. is, just for people who Harry Anderson. Yeah. Yes. From Night Court. Night Court. He was the judge in Night Court for a long time. That yeah. was his great. And then he did Dave's World. Dave's World. We both did uh, yep. one of those shows. We did. And a very famous magician. He started in Cheers. Yes. Right. And and that was the character he loved the most. Harry the Hat character. He played a character close to what he really was. Yeah. Was a guy walking into a bar doing tricks for money. Exactly. You know? So so Harry the Hat. So. We were having lunch, which we did a lot, uh, probably a couple of margaritas or more. Uh, and 
we end up in an old junk store that was on uh, Melrose Boulevard. And he said, let's go see what's in here. So we looked around and they had a bunch of stuff, but they had a whole rack of hats. And he went, oh my God. Oh, this is so he said, oh, I have to have this one. I have to have that one. I have to have this one. I have to have that one. I have to do this. So he just, we leave and he's bought, you know, 10 hats. We're walking out. And I think, uh, yeah, I was driving that day. And so he said, which hat do you want? And I said, what do you mean? So which hat do you want to wear? And I said, I'd never thought about it, but I looked and I said, well, since I'm driving, I'll take the chauffeur's hat. Anyway, here it is, boom, like that. So we get to the car now, and I, I think he's going around. No, he ma makes me open the back door for him to get in. And then he slams it. And then I look up, and he's got the Shriner's Fez on. <laughs> Shriner's it, So now he's a Shriner in the back of a, of a limousine in his mind. Rocky Rococo. He goes, where are the women? Where are the men? Where are the Is there a conference here or something like that? Just got into town. We got to go like this. And I well, yes, sir. And so now I just played the part of the chauffeur. <laughs> the chauffeur. So we're going around and he'll roll down the window and look out and go, where's the girls? And then people go, oh, God, like that. And, and he said, Jay, tur tur turn here like a chauffeur and tur turn there, turn there. Okay, go around here. And he's leading me through this neighborhood that I've never been before. And we pull up to a house and he goes, okay, okay, hey, go up and see if this is where the convention is. And I go, I, I don't know. All right. So I go to the door and I knock on the door and I stand back and I'm thinking, I, I, I got to go along with this. And he's kind of standing in the yard kind of like this. And this, this girl, this woman, uh, opens the door. I don't know who she is. And uh, I said, uh, I'm, and Harry goes, ask her, ask her. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm here to ask if this is where the convention is. And just about the time I think that she's gonna do something, Martin Lewis, another magician, comes from the back of the house with a Shriner's Fez on and said, what kept you? <laughs> <laughs> this was Martin Lewis's house, and he had seen Harry drive up and went, I got a Fez too, okay, whatever it is. Oh, no. <laughs> so, oh, my God. What are you doing these days? Yeah. Uh, really, uh, I, I say semi-retired, but it's just because I'm not actively pursuing things, you know. Yep. I, if they come, I'll take them if I want to do them. But I just did a, a corporate uh, the other day in Orlando, and it seemed pretty, except for flying with a mask on. I've never done that before. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, it was nice to be back. Um, I'm doing the tune only again in November at the North Coast Rep, which is right down in Solana Beach. It's been pushed three times now. Mm. Hopefully we'll make it. But, you know, I've always wanted to write a book uh, about ventriloquism. But I always find them so technically and kind of boring. So I'm, I'm working on an idea that, uh, that it would be basically a novel based upon my life. But there's a twist uh, in it that um, I don't want to tell right now, but I think it's a good twist. Right about what you know. Well, Jay, it's, it's, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. And you guys are the best. Else. Yeah. Now, <laughs> did, did we get to uh, any sort of sex that the boomers have? Because I really thought this was, you know telling me about how the sexy boomers well, you know we get that question a lot yeah we're now wearing pants oh yeah you know oh, that's so, the reason yeah oh, basically okay. it's in the mind of the beholder <laughs> my beholder is quite comfortable <laughs> jay thank you so much where can people where can they find you they got a well, site oh god you know uh i i have an instagram but it, it's just a code name and all i do is put art i just once a day, put a, a drawing that I've done. Oh. Uh, but I'm Jay Johnson on Facebook, and uh, my website is uh, monkeyjoke.com. If you haven't seen the two and only, the taping of Jay's stage show, highly recommended. It. It's on Amazon. You can rent it for $2.99.
not three dollars, no, but two ninety nine. Price to move. Oh man, it is so fast and funny. <laughs> thanks, Ted. absolutely brilliant. Great, thanks. Thank you, Jay. Terrific. Well, that was great. Phil. Another wonderful show. I really enjoyed talking to him. We have some great shows coming up, so stay tuned. Bye. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest Jay Johnson. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm a Ernest Guy. Stay tuned for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for seasoned hipsters. Man. Man.